Hi, this is Professor of Photography Jeff Curto, and welcome to class session number 13 of History of Photography. Class session 13 deals with post-war, post-World War II photography, looking at photography in the atomic age and the changes that photography underwent during that time. Here we are joining our class in progress. Today we're going to talk about photography in the 20th century, the middle of the 20th century, mid-20th century photography, uh, because mid-20th century photography, especially in America, uh, was a very vibrant time, um, and we'll, uh, we'll spend some time looking at, uh, at that, and in order to kind of understand where the world was um, in the middle of the 20th century, we'll start out here. And cover. Some of us remember getting under our desks to practice for the inevitable in our uh, adults' world's mind, uh, our inevitable disaster. So all of those people perishing in the atomic blasts at Hiroshima and Nagasaki and that changing the world in a, an, an almost instantaneous fashion. And so here in 1945, we have a bunch of things happening. Uh, we have the end of World War II. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt dies, and his Vice President Truman becomes the 33rd President of the U.S. The Soviet Union appears to be less of an ally to us, uh, which they had been. And the terms Cold War and Iron Curtain appear. Cold War is uh, a phrase attributed to the U.S. Pres presidential advisor, uh, Bernard Baruch, and the phrase uh, Iron Curtain comes from a Winston Churchill speech that suggested a division was forming in Europe, and that division came to be with the Soviet occupation of Berlin in 1948 and then the subsequent building of the Berlin Wall in 1961. Uh, and so that's a whole lot of political stuff happening all at one time, and in the visual arts world, one of the things that begins to happen is a kind of artistic trend known as abstract expressionism. Abstract expressionism practiced here by
by Willem de Kooning, Mark Rothko, Jackson Pollock. You can kind of see a sampling of that kind of work on the, the bottom of the screen there. With the idea that there was expression occurring. Expressionism. Abstract expressionism. So expressing what it is that they felt. And of course, so many things were happening in terms of turmoil in the world that there was a lot of feeling that was happening and a lot of ways that artists were trying to express that feeling. So uh, we'll talk quite a lot today about the world that was changing uh, and this changing world that was occurring at this particular time. In 1947, India gains its freedom, yet in 1948, Gandhi, the, the sort of spiritual leader, if nothing else, of, of India, is assassinated. Uh, we also have in 1947, Senator Joe McCarthy and the Un-American Activities Committee. Uh, McCarthy was, and you've probably heard the phrase McCarthyism, McCarthy was uh, sort of in charge of this group, uh, the Un-American Activities Committee, that eventually said that there were a lot of people in America that were uh, not on America's side, and essentially many of those people, if not uh, all of them, but most of them, were people primarily in the arts, musicians, actors, and artists. And they were blacklisted, meaning that they were, uh, that, that authorities were told that they should not work, they should not uh, be trusted, uh, because they were allegedly uh, enemies of the United States. So uh, that, of course, changed the world substantially because there was now this group of people who were considered to be on the outside of, of, of our country. Uh, and then in music, we had uh, bebop jazz. So a lot of jazz musicians had felt that uh, with cool jazz, which had been sort of the popular jazz form before this, uh, with cool jazz, music had become too classical in nature, uh, that is, too European, uh, and not enough based in the blues, which had sort of originated the jazz form here in the United States. And so this kind of music, which was known as hard bop or bebop, was a return to music that was more Afrocentric, much more blues-based, and uh, much more, according to the jazz world, pure and true to what it was that jazz origins had been. And in talking about India gaining its freedom, one of the other interesting things about India gaining its freedom at that point is that uh, it's essentially the last piece of British colonial rule. Remember that at the beginning of our time, beginning of our course, one of the things that we have talked about was the idea that, uh, that England, Britain, had kind of really had an empire that stretched all around the world and uh, India earning its freedom in 1947 is essentially the last piece of that freedom kind of disappearing, uh, or that uh, last piece of that, uh, that last piece of that empire uh, disappearing. So uh, the world is really changing. And that's really what I'm trying to, to emphasize here is that at this particular period in time, just before the 1950s uh, happened, the world is in radical transformation. There are so many things happening. And uh, one of the other pieces of the puzzle here is that the journalism world was changing. 
Um, one of the big pieces was Magnum Photo Agency, an agency that still exists, still employs very important photographers. And the photo agency was a new kind of an idea, especially Magnum. Magnum was owned by its members, meaning that the photographers, who were members of the organization, owned the organization. Prior to this time, most photojournalists had been employees of a particular magazine or newspaper or magazine group, meaning that their editorial stance was therefore the editorial stance of the publication. Now, with Magnum having a group of very talented photographers, including Henri Cartier-Bresson, who we've talked about quite a bit, Robert Capo, who we've talked about a little bit, and an another photographer we haven't really talked about here photographing Picasso, David Seymour, who uh, is frequently referred to as Chim. So if you see Chim somewhere, that's who they're talking about. So these photographers owned the agency and would work for various publications, but bring their own editorial spin as opposed to the publication's editorial spin. So that was their, that was their goal, the Magnum Photo Agency. Um, and uh, it was really created to give photographers the freedom and independence to work outside of the restrictive formulas of commercial journalism. And it was built upon the principle that the vision of every individual photographer be respected and pushed forward. So that was a real difference in the way in which information was being uh, communicated outwards. So that's the, the journalistic world. And in the artistic world, we have photographers like Aaron Siskin. Aaron Siskin, you can see his birth and death dates there, uh, relatively uh, contemporary photography, at least in some of most of our lifetimes, some of our lifetimes. Um, and Siskin was the most important and influential practitioner of abstract photography in America. During the 1950s, he pioneered a style based on the selection of forms and details in nature and architecture, uh, in flat planes arranged with clear and geometric compositions. When somebody asked him if he was interested in nature photography, he said, the only nature I'm interested in is my own nature. The only nature I'm interested in is my own nature. Siskin was a strong adherent of modernism and sought to make each photograph that he made unique. He said, when I make a photograph, I want it to be an altogether new object, complete and self-contained, whose basic condition is order, unlike the world of events and actions, whose permanent condition is change and disorder. I want to make an object that confronts you, not an object that you're just looking at, an object that's parallel to you. So Siskin begins to change the way photography is being thought of. So rather than photographs of vistas, places, or people, he's beginning to explore photography as a mechanism of abstract expressionism. Siskin went on to be an influential teacher for more than 20 years, teaching first at the Chicago Institute of Design, which was really the sort of leftover pieces of the Bauhaus, moving the Bauhaus from Germany to Chicago, where it became the new Bauhaus, and then subsequently absorbed into Chicago's uh, Institute of Design. Uh, and then Siskin later went on and finished out his career teaching at the Rhode Island School of Design RISD, some of you may know that acronym. 
Here are some of Siskin's Divers series. Another uh, fine art photographer who came of age during this time uh, was Frederick Sommer. Sommer worked with an authentic, surrealistic sensibility, producing a body of work that is, also, that is at once sort of disturbing and also quite beautiful. Born in Italy, raised in Brazil, and lived in the United States. So he also represents some other things that were happening at this time period, much more sort of people moving from one place in the world to another place in the world, choosing where they were going to live. This was something that was not terribly popular prior to the middle of the 20th century, other than immigration, uh, usually by virtue of, you know, a desire to work, leaving, you know, sort of substandard conditions in another place. But here were people like Summer, uh, who was born in Italy, eventually moved to Brazil, uh, and then eventually moved and lived in the U.S. for most of his adult life. Uh, Summer made photographs that typically required long periods of preparation, uh, nowhere more so than in his manufactured objects, uh, which he would create for the camera and then subsequently photograph. And he said, it is with the sensitized surface rather than photography itself that I am concerned. Think about him, you know, European sentence structure. He's got the you know, pieces reversed, right? He says, it is with the sensitized surface rather than with photography itself that I'm concerned. Meaning that he's interested in the materials of the medium. He's interested in the sensitized materials of the medium rather than lens-based imagery. One critic, Henry Holmes Smith, wrote about Frederick Sommer's work. The general body of photography is bland, dealing complacently with nature and treating our preconceptions as insights. Strange private worlds rarely slip past our guard. Frederick Sommer has elected to show us some things that we may have overlooked. Sommer charges an ironic or absurd artifact with the force of an ancient idea. Another critic writing about Summer wrote, Summer makes no concessions to the casual observer of his photographs. A superficial glance at his pictures reveals about as much as a locked trunk does of its contents. He contemplates his fragments until they are the intimates of his living mind. So it's another piece of this, and you'll notice that what's happening here is that these are photographers who are talking about something that is inside, much more so than they're talking about things that are outside. Another photographer who came of age during this time uh, is Bill Brandt, considered one of the preeminent photographers to have emerged from England, although he was not British by birth. Uh, Bill Brandt uh, was born in Germany to parents of Russian descent, uh, moved to London in 1934. He worked as a magazine photographer early on in his career, but lost interest in reporting news uh, toward the end of World War II and moved into this idea of expressionism and surrealism. His images are often shot with extreme wide-angle lenses, distorting his subjects rather dramatically. They're often strangely lighted. They're usually printed for very high contrast with the elimination a lot of middle tones. Brandt once said, photography is still a very new medium. 
and everything must be tried, and everything must be dared. Photography has no rules. It's not a sport. It's the result which counts, no matter how it's achieved. So it has no rules. It's not a sport. I also like this quote from Bill Brandt. I did not always know just what it was I wanted to photograph. I believe it's important for a photographer to discover this, for unless he finds what it is that excites him, what it is that calls forth an emotional response, he is unlikely to achieve his best work. For me, it was not easy. I like that. I like that idea, and it really reinforces the thing that I've seen in all my years of teaching photography. So many students are really intent on this idea of trying to make an interesting photograph that they forget about what they're interested in. Brandt says, I believe it's important for a photographer to discover what they want to photograph. For unless he finds what it is that excites him, what it, what it is that calls forth at once an emotional response, he's unlikely to achieve his best work. So often students really work at trying to make something interesting without trying to think about what it is that they're interested in and making photographs of those things. And I think there's a huge gulf. And what I see is that the students who really are typically very successful coming out of our program, certainly, are the ones who have a real interest and then make that the sort of work that they're doing, whatever that interest is. If they're uh, in love with people, if they're in love with you know, the world of the natural world uh, or social order or disorder, those kinds of things, uh, seem uh, very much to be the things that, that, you know, that motivate people, what it is that they're interested in, rather than simply trying to make pictures that are interesting. Another photographer who uh, came of age during this time uh, is Harry Callahan, uh, the uh, great critic, curator, photographer, John Zarkowski, who we'll talk about in some more detail next week, said, Harry Callahan's work draws us ever more insistently inward toward the center of Callahan's private sensibility. This sensibility is expressed in his perception of subject matter that is remarkably personal and restricted in its range. Callahan's work, in fact, was really dramatically personally oriented, with many of his pictures artistically interpreting his family relationships, especially with portraits of his wife, Eleanor, and his daughter, Barbara. His early work uh, represents his experiments with represent representational abstraction. But the work that he probably became best known for is this work that uh, sort of works through his feelings about his family. He said, I rarely start photographing immediately. This is uh, Callahan speaking here. I like to walk and walk and walk. And the beach is nice because I can walk and unwind and after a while I can start photographing. You go to the sea where it's beautiful and you want to let somebody else know about it. I think I must have felt the same way with Eleanor and that's why those photographs of her exist. I feel strongly about something and I want to photograph it. I want to share it with someone. Another photographer who came of age during this time is Elliot Porter. Porter, almost single-handedly in a way, introduced color to landscape photography, uh, a, a sort of genre of photography that had long been primarily black and white. Uh, and in doing so with color photography, he created a new way of viewing the world 
that today, of course, has become commonplace. He was an artist with strong scientific and environmental interests. He took up color in 1939, long before his fellow photographers accepted the medium of photography. Until he saw photographs by Ansel Adams, Elliot Porter was a scientist and a teacher. Uh, and that influence by Adams and also uh, by Stieglitz dramatically changed his life's path. Uh, and he decided that uh, giving up science might be a, a, a fair trade in terms of being able to be a photographer. He said, Porter said, you learn to see by practice. It's just like playing tennis. You get better the more you play. The more you look around at things, the more you see. The more you photograph, the more you realize what can be photographed and what can't be photographed. You just have to keep doing it. He also said, photography is a strong tool, a propaganda device, and a weapon for the defense of the environment, and therefore for the fosterings of a healthy human race, and even very likely for its survival. <laughs> a weapon for the defense of the environment. That's how he phrased what he was doing. His work energized environmentalists, it drew accolades from museums, and of course it created the foundations for today's color nature photography. Uh, and uh, every photographer of the natural world should be in, uh, in debt to, to Porter for his sort of groundbreaking work in the 1930s and 1940s. Another photographer who uh, came of age during this time, the French photographer Robert Doineau. Doineau, known for his modest, playful, uh, oftentimes ironic images of amusing juxtapositions, mingling social classes, and eccentric people uh, in contemporary Paris streets and cafes, uh, produced a body of work that was fairly influenced by André Kertesz, Eugene Atjeh, and of course Cartier-Bresson, but was very much his own strategy, his own idea, uh, often infused with a fair amount of humor. He says, you've got to struggle against the pollution of intelligence. What a great phrase. You've got to struggle against the uh, pollution of intelligence in order to become an animal with very sharp instincts, a sort of intuitive medium, so that to photograph becomes a magical act, and slowly other more suggestive images begin to appear behind the visible image for which the photographer cannot be held responsible. That a struggle against the pollution of intelligence in order to become an animal, an animal reactive to the situation around you. An animal. The marvels of life, he said, the marvels of daily life are exciting. No movie director can arrange the unexpected things that you find in the street. Pictures of human frailty, pictures of human nature, <coughs> pictures of the human experience. We think, generally, right? Yeah, yeah it's it's one of those, it's, it's sort of like Kappa's uh, uh, Spanish Civil War guy, which may have been staged or may not have been staged. But uh, the, it, what, it, what seems to have happened is that he saw it happen, 
and then ask them to do it again. Yeah, I was there for that. Yeah. That's exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about the changing world. Uh, in this period of time, right after the 1950s dawn, 51 to 57, we have a bunch of things happening. Uh, the very first use of the term rock and roll on the radio airwaves occurred. Uh, Cleveland radio DJ Alan Freed uses the term rock and roll to describe a song that he plays on the air. And of course that sticks and begins to describe an era of music that still is with us. Uh, the U.S. becomes involved in the Korean War during this time period. An article called This is the Beat Generation. Uh, appears in the New York Times, uh, and it describes a kind of a, a new process, a new idea about writing, about literature, and about the way in which the poetic world exists uh, that uh, brings forward a group of poets called the Beats, or the Beat Poets. Uh, we also have, during this time period, 11 African Americans being arrested in Montgomery uh, during the bus boycott after Rosa Parks uh, refuses to give up her seat to a white man. So that's happening at this time. Khrushchev threatens that Russia will make ICBM missiles, which of course they do. And uh, Jack Kerouac, uh, born 1922, died 1969, publishes poems in his seminal book, On the Road. Uh, and so let's talk a little bit about Kerouac's book, On the Road. How many people have read On the Road? A lot of people read it in the last couple of years because it celebrated its 50th anniversary. Uh, about a year and a half ago. Brown beet suit can't make a woman on a rainy corner. Broken plastic coverlets flapping in the rain to cover newspapers all printed up in plain. Guys with big pockets and heavy top coats and slit scar, headbands down the middle of their hair, all Bruce Barton combed, Stan surveying Harrison, Folsom and the ramp and the red brick clock, wishing they had a woman with some money, honey. Westinghouse elevators are full of pretty girls with classy cans and cute pans and long slim legs and eyes for the boss at a quarter of four. So that was Kerouac reading some of his own poetry. Fueled by inspiration, coffee, and massive doses of Benzedrine, Kerouac sat down at a typewriter and in one burst of creative energy, wrote the novel that would make him the voice of his generation in just 20 days, typing it out on a single 120-foot-long scroll of paper. The book, On the Road, literally became the sort of almost Bible of a generation. The subtitle or the little blurb on the front of the book that isn't probably legible from where you are says, this is the Bible of the beat generation the explosive bestseller that tells all about today's wild youth and their frenetic search for experience, capital E, and sensation, capital S. Our battered suitcases were piled on the sidewalk again. We had longer ways to go, but no matter, the road is life. There was a restlessness that Kerouac described here in this book, a restlessness that uh, obviously he had but apparently was mirrored by an awful lot of people who uh, wanted to see what else was there in the world. So the road became life, and, and Kerouac's book, On the Road, uh, which is really well worth the read. It's a fairly short book, uh, and it's, uh, it's a really interesting, uh, interesting way of looking at a particular time period, especially 
but also uh, the, just the way in which he writes uh, sort of has that, as you can see from the poetry he recited for us, uh, that sort of driving strategy. So people generally associate the beat generation more with literature and poetry than with visual art. Uh, but there were a number of people who were visual artists who sort of uh, fell into the beat generation in terms of visual artists. And one of them, uh, an important one, is this guy, Wallace Berman. And uh, uh, I'll, I'll read you what a contemporaneous critic wrote at the time that Berman uh, had an exhibition. Uh, in the 1950s, and the critic said, all his images have about them a texture of tough, bodily, concentrated realism, mixed with demonic funk sense of the forlorn and violent eros of wanderers in the lush Los Angeles night of the 50s. You kind of see that there is a combination there of the way in which the critic is writing about the work, the kinds of things that the work represents, and the generation of people who were restless and looking for something new. All his images have about them a texture of tough, bodily, concentrated realism mixed with demonic funk sense of the forlorn and violent eros of wanderers in the lush Los Angeles night of the 50s. Very evocative phraseology in terms of the way they're expressing themselves and certainly in terms of the sort of convoluted nature that Berman is using to put things together. That idea of beat visual arts uh, essentially morphed into pop art. Pop art which brought popular culture into fine art. Probably the easiest way to think about it is pop culture and art. Pop art. Popular culture, fine art. Uh, and the idea here was to make us look at the world around us, the world of our popular culture, with sharpened eyes. And here is Richard Hamilton, and here is his... his uh, piece that is called Just What Is It That Makes Today's Homes So Different, So Appealing? And you can see all of these references to popular culture in this image. And of course a much more uh, commonly known pop artist of the era uh, was Andy Warhol. Warhol's work revolved around the concept of Americana and American culture. He said that what he wanted was to be an art making robot. A robot is what he wanted to be. He hired and supervised people that he called art workers, and those people were engaged in making prints, shoes, films, books, and a wide variety of other items at his studio, which he called The Factory, located on Union Square in New York City. And again, the idea is to bring popular culture together with fine art and help people see that Art is in the world all the time. Of course, uh, one of Warhol's better known images was this picture of Che. So who's Che? Che Guevara. Che Guevara, who was? A revolutionary. Uh, and you know, he's, what's interesting is that this image of Che sort of appears all around the world. And you can go just about anywhere and see a stencil of this somewhere. Uh, and he's come to represent sort of revolutionary ideas in many different ways. Uh, so what's interesting is that because Warhol's idea about what he was making, in this case this, this uh, sort of grid-like set of portraits of Che, was to combine popular culture and art, that he rarely used his own 
things as basis for his artwork. He would take something that already existed and modify it in some way. And the thing that he took that existed before is this image uh, by a photographer named Corda, uh, whose real name was this, Alberto Diaz Gutierrez, a.k.a. Corda. He only called himself Corda, uh, uh, and he adopted that name early in his career, naming himself after the Hungarian filmmakers Zoltán and Alexander Korda, uh, who were uh, kind of revolutionary filmmakers. And Korda stood with his camera at the very center of Cuba's political crossroads. And so here is Korda's photograph of Che that eventually becomes this image that has kind of burned itself into society's psyche over a long period of time. And it's so interesting to see it out of the context of just Che's head, right? This sort of enigmatic little profile that peers in from the far left-hand side of the frame and the palm tree on the right-hand side of the frame changes the context of the picture rather dramatically. It's sort of interesting uh, to see that, that image separated in some way from, uh, from its, uh, its origins. I feel like that photograph, like, for some reason, when you see him like, standing next to the other guy, it like diminishes his, the power of it. Like, oh, yeah. The face in that. Yeah, he's so strong, he's, and then he seems like just like a short, like, I don't know. Short? Like, yeah, just short. Just a, yeah, just a short, short guy who doesn't have nearly the power that we sort of relate to him. And it's what's interesting is I, uh, in, in a, it was just a deficiency in my own education, but I didn't know that this image existed until maybe ten years ago. Uh, that you know, and and seeing it was really a, like exactly that kind of mind bender because you know this image so clearly from seeing it so often. And taking it in its original context really changes everything. So it, it reminds me of the economist picture. Of yes. Of, of, uh, the Obama in right, front of on, the on oil the spill, right? Yeah. So Roy Lichtenstein, uh, an artist who used typical elements of commercial art, comic books, and advertisements in his drawings and paintings appropriated those subjects, of the cartoon, the comic book, commercial illustrations, uh, and made paintings out of them. How many people have seen a Roy Lichtenstein painting at some point? Tell me like a thing about their size. Ginormous. Particularly large. Usually somewhere, in, you know, this might be 12 feet long and, you know, 5 feet high or something like that, right? So they're fairly large things. And that scale break dramatically changes the way in which we perceive it, because no longer do we perceive it as something that would be in a comic book. So uh, his subjects were initially from true romance books or adventure comics, as well as illustrations in the yellow pages and other kinds of commercial illustrations. Uh, but later on, he begins to draw on the whole history of art, but converting it into this sort of uh, comic book style. He called this style an unartistic style as artificial as possible. An unartistic style as artificial as possible. So his goal was to sort of subvert the idea of art and combine, again, as a pop artist, combine popular culture with artistic impulse. As a sort of quick aside, uh, contemporary photographer Lori Lambrecht completed a project of about a decade ago, maybe a little less uh, than a decade ago, 
photographing Lichtenstein in his studio. Uh, really interesting pictures that, that have a very, very strange feel to them, don't they? You know, because they're, they're, they're almost like, you know, they almost don't look real, even though we know that they are. So there's Lichtenstein standing on a stool. It looks like somebody stool. shot this with a funny perspective. Yeah, it, it, they do have a really interesting uh, just perspective. Just <laughs> No, no, I know she didn't, so. There's Lori Lambrecht. Uh, in 1955, Robert Frank set out to observe and photograph the United States. He was supported by a grant from the Guggenheim Foundation. We've talked a little bit about the Guggenheim Foundation. In fact, over the last couple of weeks, within the last 10 days, I think, uh, the Guggenheim Foundation announced its Guggenheim Award winners for this next year, a number of really important photographers uh, who deserve that kind of support, uh, were supported, which is great. How much, uh, is it? How much money is it? It varies widely. It depends on what it is that you've applied to, to do. So from several thousand dollars to many more thousands. So usually that supports purchasing equipment or getting time off from employment or something. Edward got Weston. the first one. Weston got the first, the two, first grand. Uh, two good nine grants. Yeah. No, but the first one, first for, for photography was just $2,000. Which, you know, in 1940-something, right? 1940. Probably do a lot of that. 1942, I think, is when he got that. That's a lot of dough, right? Yeah. So, uh, but uh, Frank traveled across the United States for two years. The result was a book called The Americans, uh, a visionary work and a milestone in the history of photography. Uh, Frank exposed 687 rolls of film, over 20,000 images. He printed 1,000 proofs and eventually selected 83 images for his book. He eventually befriended the beat poets, including Jack Kerouac, who ultimately wrote the introduction to the book, The Americans. And kind of, you can kind of see how this stuff starts to kind of come together. Uh, and became one of the key visual artists to document uh, the beat subculture in, uh, in America in photography. Robert Frank's The Americans Project presented American life as marked by conformity, empty symbols, racism, shallow patriotism, and disconnection. Now he's doing this in the middle of the 1950s, an era of unparalleled American prosperity. Our industrial machine was rampaging and working really hard. We were on top of the world. Uh, we were considered the the, the ultimate and an unquestioned superpower in the world. And here's Robert Frank uh, coming in and saying, well, maybe, but maybe there's another point of view. So here's Jack Kerouac from his introduction to the Americans, the, the project. That crazy feeling in America when the sun is hot on the streets and music comes out of the jukebox or from a nearby funeral, that's what Robert Frank has captured in the tremendous photographs taken as he traveled on the road around practically 48 states in an old used car with the agility, mystery, genius, sadness, and secrecy of a shadow, photographed scenes that have never been seen before on film. Very typical uh, Jack Kerouac long, long sentence. Uh, so uh, 
Kerouac went on in his introduction to say, Robert Frank, Swiss, unobtrusive, nice. With that little camera that he raises and snaps with one hand, he sucked a sad poem right out of America onto film, taking rank among the great tragic poets of the world. When asked about his work, Robert Frank said, I've been frequently accused of deliberately twisting subject matter to my own point of view. Above all, I know that life for a photographer cannot be a matter of indifference. Opinion often consists of a kind of criticism, but criticism can come out of love. It's important to see what is invisible to others. It's a tremendously important photographic project. We have two or three facsimile versions of the Americans in our library. Strongly encourage you to, to grab those and take a look at at uh, this uh, very important body of work, the sequencing of the images in the book, uh, the way in which the images kind of flow from one to another, tells a story in a, in a remarkable way. And it really changed the way people felt about what photography could do. Its editorial quality uh, became important, uh, and people began to understand photography in a kind of a different sort of way. So, this guy, Edward Steichen, who we've talked about in a, several different guises, right, throughout our time together. Here he is as an older man. And he was uh, the curator of the photography department at uh, the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. And in uh, 1955, he put together an exhibition called The Family of Man. It's been called the most successful exhibition of photography ever assembled. The book seen uh, here, the Family of Man book, is the best-selling photo book ever. Uh, and, and it continues to be the best-selling photo book ever. 503 <coughs> images were presented at the Museum of Modern Art. Two million pictures had been considered for the, uh, for the exhibition. 503 pictures were, were exhibited. And Steichen called this exhibit, quote, a mirror of the essential oneness of mankind throughout the world. Photographs made in all parts of the world of the gamut of life from birth to death. So his objective was to show the way the world was. The way the world was. And in a sense, it's, it seems to bring the world together after a period of tremendous divisiveness, right? So uh, it was a tremendously well-attended exhibition. Tens of thousands of people saw this exhibition. One of the interesting things was that many of the photographers who were asked to participate had no idea that some of their work would be mounted on the ceiling or down next to the floor, or, you know, that it wasn't really a traditional photographic exhibition in terms of work in frames, in mats, on the wall, uh, in, in that sort of way. Um, and uh, it, it uh, kind of had as a, a fair number of critics in the photographic world as well as uh, having a lot of people who celebrated it as being a very important uh, exhibition of, of imagery. But this idea that uh, Steichen was in charge of it means that it, you know, it carried some weight, um, but also this, this sort of trying to bring together uh, the gamut of life from birth to death, as Steichen said. So from there, Let's talk briefly about this guy, Gary Winogrand. We'll take a break after, after Winogrand. 
Gary Winogrand's photographs represent a kind of personal photojournalism. Personal photojournalism. In other words, they're sort of images that are journalistic in nature, but may not be the kind of journalistic images we would expect to see in magazines or newspapers. His photographs won him, as acclaim, him some acclaim as an important chronicler of contemporary American life. His use of wide-angle lenses and tilted framing uh, created images that are oftentimes disconcerting, usually satirical. One critic wrote, the fastidious intelligence that informs Winogrand's pictures comes not from photojournalism, however, but from his classic predecessors. From Otjay and Evans, Winogrand learned an abiding respect for lucidity within complexity and for clear, coherent description. Otjay convinced Winogrand of the need for truth. In Evans' work, Winogrand first recognized the distinction between photography and the world. <coughs> the distinction between photography and the world. Because in fact, what Winogrand's <coughs> basic tenet was, was this. He said, photography is not about the thing <coughs> photographed. It's about how that thing looks photographed. Photography is not about the thing photographed. It's about how that thing looks photographed. There is nothing as mysterious as a fact clearly described. And what Winogrand is trying to do in a lot of his photographs is try very, very hard to figure out the difference between what the world is and what the photograph of the world is. And really asking us to contemplate the difference between what we see and what, and perhaps more importantly, what the camera sees. He said, I like to think of photographing as a two-way act of respect. Respect for the medium by letting it do what it does best, describe, and respect for the subject by describing it as it is. A photograph must be responsible for both. Yeah. So here's Bruce Davidson. Bruce Davidson still, uh, still alive, still working, born in 1933. Uh, he began photographing when he was 10 years old in uh, Oak Park, Illinois, where he grew up. Uh, he is a member of the Magnum Agency, so uh, that agency still working with important photographers. Uh, and he worked uh, most, uh, his, his sort of most prolific early years were 1958 to 1961, when he created bodies of work like The Dwarf, Brooklyn Gang, and the Freedom Rides. And he also received a Guggenheim grant in 1962 to end up, uh, to photograph what ended up being uh, a documentation of the Civil Rights Movement. In looking at Davidson's work, uh, let's briefly consider uh, a book by a woman named Hala Beloff. So this uh, Hala Beloff, a, a, a social critic, a photography critic, wrote a book called Camera Culture. Uh, this is a book from about the 19, late 1980s. And in this book, Camera Culture, she, she suggests that there is a social psychology of photography. And that photography can add to our understanding of people and their social lives by looking at subcultures and general human social interactions. And I think in many ways, that's what photographers like Bruce Davidson were doing in the 1950s and 1960s 
looking at subcultures, looking at general uh, human social interactions. And so uh, photographs by photographers like Winogrand and Davidson and Robert Frank and a lot of others are evidence in some ways of the general sociology of their time. So they're not just making photographs that are oftentimes interesting to look at because of their subject matter or composition or whatever, uh, but also uh, are resonant with whatever it is that's happening in society at their general time. So Beloff's book, Camera Culture, making that suggestion. Danny Lyon, self-taught American photographer and filmmaker. Uh, self-taught becomes fairly important because just after the, the war, a little bit before the war, but mostly after the war, photographic education starts to take hold. And people begin to go to school to learn to be photographers. Uh, but Danny Lyon is a self-taught photographer, also a filmmaker, and also a writer because he began to write uh, captions and, and, and texts to accompany his photographs. And his photographs also fit within this uh, social psychology, photographic uh, social psychology idea. Um, but one of the things that's interesting is that Lyon, uh, in creating a, a book project, uh, about outlaw motorcyclists, and a, a book was called Bike Riders, published in 1967. Um, in addition to making the photographs, he became a member of the Chicago Outlaw Motorcycle Club. Traveled around with them, shared their lifestyle, uh, and his attempt was to record and glorify the life of the American bike rider. Now, the really significant part of this is that Lyon was doing this to photograph that culture from the inside of that culture. Prior to this time, most photographers who documented something, some culture or subculture, especially one outside of their own, were sort of hovering above that culture, looking at it from a distance, looking at it from a distance. Whereas now photographers begin to recognize that in order to photograph the thing they want, they need to get inside the thing that they want. Um, and so Danny Lyon gets inside that photographic culture. So the world continued to change. Here's some other parts. Picnic, man, you are too square. I'm, I, I have to straighten you out. You got to put something down. You got to make some jive. Don't you know what I'm talking about? You're tearing me apart. You, you say one thing, he said another, and everybody changes back again. So, two famous movie scenes, Marlon Brando from The Wild One, 1953, uh, and James Dean from Rebel Without a Cause, 1955. Brando defining the idea of cool and how important it was to not be like what had come before, and James Dean expressing the, that sort of angst that had come along where, where you know, you say one thing, they say another, I don't even know which way to go, you're tearing me apart. And uh, that kind of uh, anxiety that's being created in this particular time period, and then this overarching desire uh, for cool, uh, whatever that might be. And uh, in that same moment is this photographer, William Klein. An international jury at a very important photo show called Photokina. How many people have heard of Photokina? German uh, photo show every other year considered to be the most important photo ex, uh, exhibition and uh, expo in the world. 
Fotokina, Cologne, Germany, every other year. Uh, and, uh, Are you and, going? Uh, I've never been. I mean, I'm gonna, that's on my bucket list for you know, post-retirement. So uh, it's, it's not this year because it's only an odd number of years. So in 1963, an international jury at Fotokina voted William Klein as one of the 30 most important photographers in the medium's history. Now I find that to be really remarkable, right? It's especially remarkable in that here's the name of a, of a photographer who so far in this class we haven't talked about, probably most of you have never heard about, but here this international jury at the most important photo expo in the world said was one of the 30 most important photographers in the medium's history, at least as of 1963. So uh, really an interesting guy. Um, Klein's visual language made an asset out of the photographic accident, out of graininess, out of blur, out of distortion. Klein himself described his work as, quote, a crash course in what is not to be done in photography. He employed wide-angle lenses, super-fast film, novel framing, and unusual printing procedures to make images in a fragmented and anarchic mode that emphasized raw immediacy and also highlighted the photographer's presence in the scene. Highlighted the photographer's presence in the scene. And again, if we think back to those 19th and early 20th century and even mid 20th century photographs uh, you know, by everyone from Carlton Watkins to Ansel Adams, we're looking at photographs where the photographer is in some ways removed from the scene. And Klein puts the photographer in the scene. He puts the photographer right there. You are part of the action. And so therefore the photographer is kind of inviting you into that visual world. Another photographer uh, who came of age during this same time period, Roy de Caraba who first won acclaim in 1955 for his collaboration with writer Langston Hughes on a book called The Sweet Flypaper of Life, a classic book about everyday life in Harlem. And again, a photographer approaching his world, the world of the black man in New York City's Harlem, from the inside, not photographing it from the external position of somebody reporting, but rather photographing the culture that he found and the culture that was part of his culture, that was him, looking inside from the inside and seeing, you know, seeing what was there. The critic Peter Galassi wrote, at the heart of De Carava's photography is an aesthetic of patient contemplation. It is common that we say to ourselves or to others that our lives would be richer if we would only slow down, if we could take time to savor consider if we could attend to our own backyards. Attending to our own backyards. So De Carava is photographing within his own world. So let's talk about another person who's a part of the changing world. This guy named Marshall McLuhan. How many people have heard of Marshall McLuhan? A couple, three of you have heard of Marshall McLuhan. Really interesting guy. Um, and these next few slides are tremendously wordy. Do not write it down. Right? It's not important that you get the words that are on the slide. I try not to put a ton of words on my slides. I'm hoping you haven't had to you know, 
trying to write down everything on the slide. These next few slides are really, really wordy. Just pay attention to the idea, not so much the, you know, the, the massive amounts of text. So McLuhan was all of these things that are at the top, an educator, a philosopher, a communications theorist. And his basic overarching theory is one of technological determinism. Technological determinism, or the belief that technological development determines social and cultural change. So that's his basic tenet, that as technology changes, so do we as a society. And one of his sort of uh, key statements is this one, the medium is the message. The medium is the message, that the, the photograph is the message, the television is the message. And he defined media in a really weirdly broad way. But, and, and sort of bear with me as we go through this next little section so we can kind of see what's going on. He said that media included light bulbs and wheels along with television and photography. And he also said that the dominant media of a time determined the ratio of the senses, how we experience the world. And we can kind of interpolate our world today with the internet and other technologies that exist in our world today that the ratio of the senses, how we experience the world, how much of what we experience comes through screens versus how much we experience in other ways, right? All right, so um, let me give you quickly just a, a couple of the, the titles of the books that this guy wrote. 1951, he wrote a book called The Mechanical Bride, Folklore and Industrial Man. In uh, uh, 1962, um, he wrote, uh, I'm sorry, in 1960, he wrote Explorations in Communication. In 1962, he wrote The Gutenberg <coughs> Galaxy, The Making of Typographic Man. The Gutenberg Galaxy, so he's talking about the printed word, The Making of Typographic Man. Uh, in 1964, Understanding medium in a Media, and in 1967, The Medium is the Message, which is his seminal, most important, not seminal book, but his most important book, certainly the one that most people remember this guy for. So uh, here he is talking briefly uh, in a little video about uh, where we are regarding technology. The, the artist is the only person who picks his antennae, pick out these messages before anybody. And so he is always thought of as being way ahead of his time because he lives in the present. There are very many reasons why most people prefer to live in the age just behind them. It's safer. To live right on the shooting line, right on the frontier of change and so on, is terrifying. So he's talking about the way in which technology's changes impact the way we are. And he says, you know, a lot of people prefer to be just a little bit behind the curve because it's not as scary as being right out on the, as he calls it, the shooting line. Uh, and that the artist, he says, is somebody who is often out there at the edge a little bit more than others uh, because they maybe are, are used to that idea of danger. So again, another really wordy slide. Don't worry about the exact words, just sort of, uh, sort of pay attention to what he's dealing with. He says, uh, he said in his, in his books, there were two different kinds of media, hot and cool. And these are weird because, you know, he's sort of describing things in his own way, uh, but bear with me again to sort of understand what he's, what he's talking about, because eventually this will get somewhere, right? Uh, at least I hope it will, right? So he says a hot medium, is a high-definition channel of communication, like a photograph, that focuses on a single sensory receptor, low on interactivity. So 
a photograph we confront only with our eyes. It doesn't give us any auditory, any textural, anything other than visual. So he says it's hot, and he says it's low on interactivity. And then he says a cool medium is one like television that stimulates several different senses, requires high sensory involvement, high on interactivity. We have to interact with television more than we do with a photograph, so says Marshall McLuhan. Uh, so, uh, so this book that he wrote in 1967, the medium is the or medium is the message. He argued in that book that the form of media has a more significant effect on society and knowledge than the content that the medium carries. That the form is more important than the thing that it's saying. The way it gets to us, he says, is much more important than what it is that it's telling us. He prophesied that printed books would become obsolete and that printed books and uh, uh, television would disappear, uh, other information technology. And he said, the new electronic interdependence recreates the world in the image of a global village. Really interesting, right? You know, these are terms that we sort of kind of, you know, hopefully some of you are kind of noticing that some of this stuff seems to resonate with things that are happening today and so forth and so on. But he's writing about these things in the mid to late 1960s. So uh, another big wordy slide, but you, you get the idea. And he talks about hot and cool media. And he says, any hot medium allows of less participating than a cool one. As a lecture, like we're here in now, makes for less participation than a seminar where discussion is happening back and forth all the time. And a book less than dialogue. So he's talking about the way in which we, uh, the way in which we deal with each other and the way in which we communicate information. And he says, hot media are high in definition and demand little participation, generally speaking associated with the eye rather than the ear, usually sequential or orderly. Cool media are low in definition. And uh, you know, you might argue as I might with the way in which this chart, which is not my chart, it's his chart, is laid out. I might not necessarily agree with all of it. Uh, but here's this guy who is theorizing about a future. And here are a few of the things that he said. The car has become the carapace, the protective and aggressive shell of urban and suburban man. The road is our major architectural form. Men on frontiers, whether of time or space, abandon their previous identities. Neighborhood gives identity Frontiers snatch it away. With telephone and TV, it's not so much the message as the sender that is sent. The future of the book is the blurb, and if it works, it is obsolete. Fascinating, right? That a guy in 1960s is describing the way our world has become. I mean, he didn't even know that you know, Hummer would make the H2, right? With the car becoming our aggressive shell, you know, or giant jacked up pickup trucks, right? You know, so, so what I find interesting is that here's a guy who says that the medium controls how we interact with it. And that the medium becomes far more important to us than the thing that's carried. And I would defy any of you in the room to have not at some point mindlessly and completely without any interest in any particular thing, randomly clicked on links on the internet that has nothing to do with you or your interest in anything 
or anything about what you might want to know and just watch the, the sort of flow of information, which is tremendously vast, right? There is nothing in the world that we can't know at least a little bit about at a couple of clicks of our right finger or left if you're a southpaw. So here's Marshall McLuhan talking about the way in which our world in his mind would be common. It seems as though it has become that way and certainly that central one, if it works, it is obsolete, seems to be a hallmark of our lives right now, right? You know, if it works, it must be something we need to replace. So, well, kind of fascinating, isn't it? Computers, every yeah, 18 right. months. Thereabouts. Yeah, I was just talking to somebody this morning about the you know, couple of obsolete computers I have sitting on the floor in my house, you know, just taking up space, don't really know what to do with them. At one point, they were worth a lot of money, now so not so much, you know, so. Melt down the little components, right? All right, so let's move on to uh, Dwayne Michaels. Michaels, a poet, a philosopher, and a photographer. He's managed to merge those three things, poetry, philosophy, and photography, into single output images for a highly distinct and original body of work. And his work, of course, also came of age during this same time period of the 1960s, uh, and uh, poems and short stories are paired with his images, and photos are grouped together in storytelling <coughs> series. They are often accompanied by his handwritten commentary or titles that are actually part of the image itself, the illustrated man. This one is called The Dream of Flowers, intended to be seen sequentially. His photographs are set up and surreal. His writing, on the other hand, is very contemplative and oftentimes very philosophical. In the end, Michael's views on life and the world around him shine through what it is that he is writing about and photographing about. So uh, I'll read this little text here that's written underneath this photograph. This photograph is my proof, it says. This photograph is my proof. There was that afternoon when things were still good between us and she embraced me, and we were so happy. It did happen. She did love me. Look, see for yourself. Investing images that at least at first may not seem to be much of anything with a deeper sense of meaning that is extraordinarily personal. Extraordinarily personal. Here describing uh, the sort of... Uh, interaction between two strangers who may or may not be. We've all had that feeling sometime. Michaels once said, I was lucky because I never went to photography school and I didn't learn the photography rules. And in not learning the rules, I was free. I always say you're either defined by the medium or you redefine the medium in terms of your needs. You either are defined by the medium where you redefine the medium in terms of your needs. And in some ways, the reason that I put Dwayne Michaels uh, in, in the spot where he is is so that Marshall McLuhan's ideas about medium and message kind of come before because he says, you're either defined by the medium, let photography define you, or you redefine the medium in terms of your needs, how you communicate. So here I've put together a few of these sequential images in sort of uh, uh, 
one picture after another sequence. Michael said, the best part of us is not what we see, it's what we feel. We are what we feel. We are not what we look at. We're not our eyeballs, we're our mind. People believe their eyeballs and they're totally wrong. That's why I consider most photographs extremely boring, just like Muzak, inoffensive, charming, another waterfall, another sunset. This time, colors have been added to protect the innocent. It's just boring. But that whole arena of one's experience, grief, loneliness, how do you photograph lust? Photographer looking inside himself and bringing those ideas outside. Chuck Close, a photographer and a painter, doing both simultaneously throughout his uh, career. Uh, born in 1940, still living, still working, still making art. Uh, and uh, when asked about the difference between his photographs and his paintings, he said, what difference does it make whether you're looking at a photograph or looking at a still life in front of you, you still have to look. Still have to look. And he's played with the hyper-realistic quality of photographic images and his ability to create hyper-realistic painted images. This is a painting. This is a photograph. So he plays with that and also plays with the way in which the photograph can be broken down whether it was through grain of earlier photographs or digital pieces of contemporary photographs. There's a couple of images of Close at work. Um, he's confined to a wheelchair from a, uh, an odd uh, uh, illness that he has. Oh, I forgot, to, I forgot completely last week to pass yeah. this around, so last week everybody was here. Uh, I'll pass this around. I just remembered it today. But you can kind of get a sense of the scale of how he works, how big these images are. He's got this, uh, uh, oops, I didn't mean to change there. He's got this great uh, platform that he paints from where the canvas can be moved up and down relative to him so he doesn't have to move around in his wheelchair. Most recently, Chuck Close has been making daguerreotypes. Everything I love about photography, he said, was already there in 1840. The brightest highlights possible, the deep, dark, velvety blacks, and the unbelievable range of tones in between. The immediacy of them and the intimacy of them. It's like holding a book in your lap. When you look at something with a bunch of other people, it's a different experience. I just love the object status of the daguerreotype. Everything I love about photography, he said, was already there in 1840. So this is, this is Chuck Close himself. And he also has experimented with the large format 20 by 24 Polaroid camera. Minor White, who we looked at briefly before, uh, the uh, critic, curator, writer, photographer, John Zarkowski wrote, of those photographers who reached their creative maturity after the Second World War, none has been more influential than Minor White. White's influence has depended 
not only on his own work as a photographer, but on his services as teacher, critic, publisher, and house mother for a large portion of the community of serious photographers. That house mother comment is based on the fact that uh, White uh, uh, ran a, a sort of commune-like compound uh, in uh, New York, upstate New York, where photographers would come and uh, spend a week or a month or a few days, uh, work, make photographs, talk with one another, so forth and so on. White was known for his beliefs, which were influenced by Oriental philosophy. And those beliefs were centered around the sacred and spiritual quality of photography. For minor white, photography was a religion. It wasn't like a religion. It was a religion. It was his religion. He said, no matter how slow the film, spirit always stands still long enough for the photographer that it has chosen. Let the subject generate its own photographs. Become a camera. Let the subject generate its own photographs. Become a camera. So for him, photography was not just something to be done. It was something to be practiced in an effort to spiritually enlighten him and the people around him. Ralph Eugene Meatyard. Meatyard's haunting and enigmatic photographs present a world of dreamlike mystery. Children appear as masked figures, oftentimes in decrepit rooms and acting inscrutable dramas or charades. Meatyard's photographs comprised members of his family, his friends, and his neighbors, all posed and created in these sort of odd tableau. He never just took a photograph. His work always was carefully planned and executed, oftentimes full of some sort of menace or foreboding. working through whatever demons might have been inside of him. Ralph Gibson. Gibson wrote, well, for the longest time, I've known that photography, for me, is not directly linked to an external event. For example, if I say that tomorrow there's going to be an execution at 12 o'clock, if you get there at 12 o'clock, we can all win a Pulitzer Prize. But if you get there at 12.01, you miss your shot, as it were. So what I wanted to do is to be able to make my perception of anything become the subject itself. I wanted to make my perception of anything become the subject itself. And there are some interesting things about Gibson's work. Most people have seen Gibson's work through the publication of books that Gibson himself published. And in those books, we would often see two-page spreads like this one. And those two-page spreads would be uh, the, the, the sort of juxtaposition of photographs that, as Gibson said, uh, may not necessarily be uh, related, but somehow now become related because of his decision of how to place them together. So he said, for this reason, I've attempted to take pictures of simple things. You know, like a cardboard box, or a chair, or a spoon. Very humble objects. 
I'm not terribly drawn to the epic event. I'd like to make something totally insignificant into an object of importance by virtue of how photography works. And as I mentioned, Gibson became known through a series of photographic books produced by a publishing company that he started for the purpose of publishing his own books called Lustrum Press. He produced a trilogy of books from 1970 through 1975. First, The Somnambulist in 1970, Deja Vu in 1973, and Days at Sea in 1975. These books were notable uh, first, because they were published by his own publishing house, and so therefore had no other editorial content. But they were also notable for their sequencing of images and for their almost complete lack of text, as well as for the photographs that were in the book. So he's controlling the way in which the images arrive in the public eye controlling what it is that he's photographing, but also controlling how it is that people see them. Intriguingly, Gibson apprenticed with both Dorothea Lange and later with Robert Frank, both of whom, of course, understood the concept of sequential images presented in book format because Lange had produced American Exodus and Robert <coughs> Frank, of course, had produced The Americans. Gibson's work has a strongly surrealistic quality, and the sequencing tends to give a more narrative quality, even than Robert Frank's Americans, as well as being very heavily rooted in the erotic. And then Jerry Yulesman. Photo montages by Jerry Yulesman are perhaps the most significant silver printmaking event and achievement of the 1960s and beyond. His photographs are a curious blend of themes, motifs, and sensibilities. In a single Yulesman print, one might find elements of pop art, of expressionism, of photography as comedy, of photography as self-knowledge, aspects of surreal and romantic fantasy, formalist and conceptual experiment. And he's been really doing these pictures since the 1960s and continues to do them to this day. He's been a prominent spokesman for what he calls post-visualization. Post-visualization. Sort of taking the ideas that Edward Weston had of visualizing the image in his mind's eye before he released the shutter button, to something that Yulesman says is the willingness on the part of the photographer to re-visualize the final image at any point in the entire photographic process. He began using uh, the darkroom as a visual research lab in the early 1960s, really sort of achieving uh, sort of some tremendous successes from about 1965 on. He called it a visual research lab that his studio, his place of creativity, was far less about wandering the world and making photographs and far more about what he could determine could become a photograph in combinations of images at a later time. And to sort of round us up this afternoon, Yulesman said, one of the major changes in attitude that occurred in the world of art as we moved from the 19th into the 20th century was that the 20th century artist 
became more involved with personal expression than with celebrating exclusively the values of the society or the church. Along with this change came a broader acceptance of the belief that the artist can invent a reality that is more meaningful than the one that is literally given to the eye. And I subscribe enthusiastically to this. So what I hope you saw today was a huge number of image makers who were much less focused on what was out there and much more focused on what was inside. That this idea of expressive photography really comes of age from uh, post-war through the 1960s and 70s. So we'll wind up here a little. Miles Davis and Gil Evans, Will of the Wisp. Ominous, foreboding. <laughs> <laughs>